Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we will be listening in on one of the sessions from the Third Sector Fundraising Conference on how to diversify your income streams post-COVID. But first, this week, it seems that the Telegraph newspaper has discovered that senior executive pay exists in the charity sector. <gasps> well, I, for one, am shocked. shocked what a I revelation. I thought everybody that worked for charity was a volunteer. Absolutely. So the uh, newspaper has done a study of senior executive pay uh, at 270 charities. And the report has revealed that more than 270 charities are paying their bosses in excess of £100,000 a year. So they've done a big old report all about it. And um, I mean, I don't want to say it looks like quite familiar, but um, yeah, it's, it's uh, I, I'm not sure if I've read it and seen anything new. What's your take, Rebecca? I mean, a study of charity pay, that is an interesting idea and, and you know, something that, you know, we've we found interesting um, and uh, have have actually, oh, no, turns out been doing for a number of years. So, yeah, I just I just find it a very, very interesting one. I just think some of the I don't think it's so much about what the study finds, uh, because, you know, I, there probably are some interesting stats. There are some outliers. There always are going to be kind of, you know, absolute screw ups like the Mary Stopes International decision a couple of years ago to give its chief executive a hundred a hundred percent bonus, um, which is ridiculous. Um, so there there always are going to be those kind of bits where you're like, oh, that's interesting. Here's an interesting stat. I think it's the way it's packaged in the Telegraph is is you know implying that charities are somehow hiding this. And there is actually a, a comment piece from the former charities minister Rob Wilson, sort of saying that you know we keep talking about self regulation has failed. Charities report to the Charity Commission on this. It's not self-regulation. Like that's not true. It's it's not self-regulation. They're they're a they're a government, they're a quasi-autonomous government body. Um, that that just seems an odd claim. And there's just this idea that there's not enough transparency. That charities aren't publishing this. Actually, the data all is in their annual accounts. And if you are a donor and you are that concerned, you can go and look up their annual accounts on the Charity Commission. And okay, it's a little bit of faff and the, the two-click thing, which again is presented in the Telegraph as something that Martin Lewis is calling for fresh. That's actually not new. That's been around for a while. And I will say that a lot of charities don't necessarily do that. Or if they do, like, and I say this as someone that has to wander around charity websites quite a lot, it can be quite hard to find where they've put the annual report, but it is there. Um, so I think this idea that the Telegraph is revealing something new and is calling for an overhaul change of the system it's not it's not really true, but it's being presented in that way, um, which I find quite, quite odd. We're seeing a lot of these kind of comments through these pieces saying that um, charities have to be very, very careful about their salaries, their senior salaries and what they're paying. Um, the idea that paying a chief executive too much uh, could erode public trust in charities and saying that uh, charities need to be able to justify what they are paying to donors and the public. So a lot of comments along these lines. Now, I don't feel like this is an especially new conversation. Um, and we, you know, spoke to a number of people at Umbrella Bodies uh, this week who said, among other things, that obviously high executive pay makes up a tiny proportion of the sector. The vast majority of the mm. sector, it is volunteer run. So 
big senior executive pay numbers are the exception. And I mean, also, the other the other thing, and this was something that came out in our pay study, was that the top charities that are paying a lot of money are, are not the ones that are funded by individual giving, by donors on the street. And I think that is something that is directly kind of obfuscated within the Telegraph's commentary that they're talking about, you know, hardworking donors expect to know where their money is going and, and you know, they don't expect to be paying for these massive salaries. Actually, they aren't, generally speaking, the bigger ones are not these charities that people get up about. So there's there's kind of a confusion about what is being meant by the word charity there, right? Yeah. Um, something that Ben Wittenberg, who is the Director of Development and Delivery at the Directory of Social Change said, um, is that unless you have like a lot of information about a specific role, it is impossible to form a sensible opinion on what level of salary can be considered too much or not enough as well. So these with these small numbers of high salaries, it's a very complicated thing to make a judgment about. And he said that, you know, obviously trustees have to determine executive pay. Mm. Um, But what he said was that, you know, rather than justifying pay to the public, as it were, trustees need to be able to justify their processes and demonstrate to donors and beneficiaries and the wider public that they came to this decision in like an open and a clear way. And then to be prepared to stand by that, which I think sounds sensible. And we also had, you know, we had uh, feedback from Karen Bradshaw, who is the chief executive of the charity finance group, who, again, she agreed that trustees should be enabling people to ask questions about pay through annual reports and financial disclosures, which, to reiterate, a lot of organisations are already doing. And trustees need to be prepared to be like on the front foot so that they can articulate why high salaries where they exist are justifiable. But... She made a really good point, which I also think bears repeating, which was that she challenged the notion and narrative that leading charities who bring the same skills, the same time and value to their roles as their counterparts in the private sector do. Why should they be paid significantly less simply because they are trying to deliver a public good? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I do think there is an argument to be made for the charity sector to have this conversation with the public. Like you were saying, it's an old debate and it's because it comes up time and time again. And I was I was saying when we did the podcast episode about our charity pay survey, um, that the one thing in, in my time at Third Sector that you can see in the back end of our, not so much now because of the way we count readership, but um, it used to be that whenever a scandal of any sort happened in the charity sector, the charity, the most recent charity pay study would be the most read piece on our website. And that wasn't from subscribers. That was from people Googling charity. So it felt like, you know, people were annoyed with charity about this one thing. And then it became about charity pay. And I do think there's room for the sector to have, you know, a nuanced conversation about this. But, you know, as the Telegraph's piece shows, there is a section of the public that are really riled up by this. And the Telegraph wouldn't run this piece otherwise. And a cynic might ask why they're going so big on um, this issue at the moment, when obviously we've had kind of um, a trouncing of the government by Dominic Cummings recently. Things aren't going so well in a lot of different places. A cynic might ask why there's been this pivot to talking about charities right now. But of course, Emily, as we've established, you and I are not cynics. So we won't, oh, no. be, we won't be asking that question. But, you know, for many people, I think their only understanding of this issue comes from pieces like this, which are, you know, shouting from the rooftops 
and and you know very strongly suggesting there is a problem in an ideal world i think there would be room for a nuanced discussion on this but the problem is when it comes to this issue when you've got the telegraph certain ex-conservative politicians and actually to an extent the charity commission involved trying to have a nuanced discussion is like agreeing to try and recreate the roof of the sistine chapel and then finding out you're only allowed to use like a lego brick and half a dried out pack of clown makeup to do it right like it's just it's not you're not approaching it with the tools you need for the job or with the, the, the conditions you need for the job um, that is such an analogy. Is, <laughs> I worked very hard on it. You worked hard on that. I one. did. I did. You know, it just, it just, I, I do feel like, yeah, there's just a, a a lack of good faith to have this conversation in the way that probably it does need to be had. So I don't know how charities could be engaging the public in this way. You know, when we spoke to Christiana, she was like, yeah, but you know, if you approach people and try and educate them. That is immediately a turn off. Nobody wants you to sit down and educate them about actually why they're wrong. So it is a really tricky one. But yeah, I just think a lot of the, the, the coverage in The Telegraph, they're unnuanced to the point of kind of, I think actually, actually being quite unhelpful and, and not necessarily as uh, accurate, uh, as informative yeah. as perhaps they might be. Yeah. Well, if you would like to hear a nuanced discussion of senior executive pay in the sector, you can, in fact, go back a few episodes and check out our May episode, which dug into the findings of Third Sector's 2021 charity pay study. Um, And we interview the brilliant Christiana Rickson, who was the head of policy at Akivo. Uh, but has now moved on. Um, So you can go back, you can listen to that podcast uh, if you are interested in a fuller discussion about charity executive pay. But for now, let's move on and hear some stuff about diversifying income streams. Last week, the Third Sector Fundraising Conference took place virtually, and I chaired a session on diversifying income streams in the age of COVID-19, asking, what does this look like for 2021? I was joined by Sarah Medcalf, Deputy Head of Foundation at the Newcastle United Foundation, Peter Grant, Planning Director at The Good Agency, and Hamid Azad, Chief Executive of Montada Aid. We discussed how charities can create real, lasting and positive change in their fundraising practices in response to the COVID crisis, how the catastrophic loss of income during the crisis has been managed, and where that leaves charities now. And we looked at whether collaboration across the sector could help organisations connect with new and existing audiences using the lessons learned over the past year. I started by asking Sarah Medcalf what position her charity was in at the beginning of the pandemic and what had happened to its finances as a result. So uh, we are a regional charity, so based in the northeast. Uh, we're now 13 years old. So really, since we started in 2008, we've had income growth across all of our um, fundraising income streams. So I suppose pre-pandemic, we had a plan, as, as everybody did, um, and we were really focused on diversifying our income. So we had invested in a fundraising manager quite a few years previously to, to really look at that unrestricted income um, and had grown uh, across all of our portfolio of, of, of income streams. So um, we uh, also, I suppose, have earned income. So what we do is look, we looked at our, I suppose, our strengths. So association with Newcastle United, we were able to create, I suppose, products that we could sell to generate income, a bit like a hospice would do that for uh, within retail. Um, and then we would have raised income, which would be very much the traditional fundraising, your, your dinners, but also the grant income as well. 
So I suppose pre-pandemic, we were looking at around 55% um, raised income, about 45% earned income. And I think what we wanted to do in order to have more control over our income was to really decrease our reliance on grants and, and that fundraising um, and increase, I suppose, contracts and, and selling of services to a certain extent. We are in a lot of schools, about 25% of primary schools uh, across the Northeast, selling our, our expertise in, in health and educational programmes. With the pandemic, that essentially stopped. So we couldn't go into schools, we couldn't deliver our coaching, we couldn't deliver our educational programs. So that was a real challenge for us um, because we wanted to retain our staff. Um, so what has happened, there's been, been much more of a shift over the past kind of 12 to 18 months on increasing our grant income because, as with everybody, that was really the, the, the only income that, that we could really go for. We did look at, um, I suppose, us as a charity, we very much focus on, I suppose, major donors, corporate income uh, and grants. We don't really have a huge portfolio of individual donors, uh, again, I suppose, like a hospice. So that digital space when COVID first hit was 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 quite an interesting one for us. I think we we actually looked at that and and, and everybody, as, as you would expect, was we need to generate income. Do we go to uh, do we do the online quizzes, get digital involvement? We kind of took a step back from that because it just felt like a really crowded marketplace. Um, and for uh, and refocused our efforts on going to our current funders and partners. And actually, what did happen was some of our corporate partners who really wanted to help within COVID but didn't know how to do it came to us and said look we want to give you some funding what can you do with it so that was really interesting in terms of the the, the strength of relationships that we had but we did very much focus on grants and I suppose now rather than 55% um, we're looking at a kind of 65% of, of that kind of that um, I suppose that raised income I would like to get back to, to to what it was previously but yeah I think that's a work in progress. Yeah, no, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I mean, Hamid, for you, my um, understanding, well, obviously the uh, pandemic came at quite an unfortunate time for you guys. Um, where were you in terms of, the, of um, fundraising and, and what impact did the pandemic have? We, uh, of course, uh, we are a global charity working in more than 30 countries. Uh, so uh, before pandemic, we are dependent on 100% earned income. But pandemic stopped almost everything. Uh, it was it, it, it was like a big shock, like uh, all other organizations. But instead of actually uh, becoming shocked, we tried to find opportunities. How actually we can we can find opportunities in the challenges. Normally, before pandemic, we had lots of physical fundraising opportunities, like in that fundraising dinners, physical fundraising run, fundraising uh, uh, mosque collections, and 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 different avenues. You know that. But because of the lockdown, everything was stopped. Yeah. Then we thought, what can we do? Yeah. This is actually issue of survival now. Yeah. We sat together and we thought about uh, our strategy and took some strategic decision. So in, in terms of revenues, we look for the partners. We look for uh, we, we turn actually in, in, uh, our physical fundraising space into digital space. Then it's unbelievable. This actually challenge brought a big opportunity and we opened up a digital platform and we started actually targeting new audience, new audience of donors. And we got actually amazing response, you know. And you know that yeah, Mantra Ramadan is uh, in our faith-based organization, especially Muslim faith-based organization, Mantra Ramadan is the main fundraising season. 
I think about 70% of our income come uh, in So last Ramadan, yeah, not this Ramadan, last year Ramadan for past pandemic, it was because it came all on a sudden, yeah, we do not make ourselves prepared fully, but still we opened the digital platform and then uh, and then we actually started targeting new audience. We saw that yeah, our income was in fact more than the uh, normal time. If, if we do the cost benefit analysis, value, volume was it was little less, but actual value was more because cost was less, income was more. And then second, what we have we have done that we actually look for the partners uh, elsewhere. There are in charity sector there are uh, charities who have fund but does not have the you know the implementation arm strong. But Muntadev is an organization we have a very strong implementation arm in 23 countries. We approach those charities. Hi, they are we, we can actually form a collaboration. You have the money, we have the uh, delivery win. Let us uh, work together. Some organizations, they had hundreds of thousands of pounds, but they don't know how to deliver it. They said, give it to us. We can deliver this. Okay. It opened a new avenue of fundraising. Through that collaboration, they gave their funding to us and we delivered for them. You know, So this, this, this way, I think we took uh, challenges as an opportunity. And apart from digital, Plus, we, we, we actually look for a, a partners among the competitors, then find out the commonality. What is the common common state? Some some organizations have the expertise in one area, but we had expertise in other areas. Let us share the expertise. And by sharing expertise, we can actually raise funds. And this, this work as well. We saw that through the pandemic, we actually found new avenues of opportunities for fundraising. So I think my, my message here would be, let us keep the hope alive and take the challenges as opportunities. Fantastic. No, and it's really good to be hearing about those positive stories, because I think particularly, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this real feeling of dread around the sector. Um, yeah, we'll absolutely come on to talking more about that collaboration later on as well. Um, Pete, I know you um, work with a variety of charities, and I was just wondering, you know, do the experiences that Sarah and Hamid have been sharing kind of chime with you? Yeah, definitely. I um, We saw that the public were incredibly generous um, in the short term. Uh, so lots of emergency giving around COVID. Um, but the biggest kind of shift that we're, we're seeing actually as a, an agency that's working as a business in this space is the convergence of the charity sector and the commercial sector. So we've, we've had a long heritage working with charities, but increasingly we have businesses coming to us saying, help us. Uh, you know, solve social problems as well. And what's been really interesting in the last year is we've been able to partner up businesses and charities to solve social issues that have, you know, obviously increased because of the pandemic. And this hasn't just been in the kind of traditional format of corporate giving, but actually working on initiatives uh, together uh, that that kind of solve social problems. And so that kind of that convergence of charity and business has been the most interesting shift for us this year. It's, it's diversifying our income stream as a business as well. And um, we think that in the future, actually, there'll be a much more blurred boundary in between what is a business and what is a charity, and that there will simply be kind of mission-led brands that raise or, or, or get money through through retail. It won't really matter, but it will be the, the, the uh, mission that's the most important thing. Uh, brilliant. And to sort of move on and talk about digital fundraising, um, uh, obviously Sarah was saying there that she'd had some, or that they kind of perceived that as being quite a kind of 
crowded marketplace. I mean, from your point of view, was that something you were advising charities to get involved with or, or were you seeing a lot of charities having that problem? Yeah, definitely. Um, especially with face-to-face and street fundraising and events dropping off a cliff really, really suddenly, there was a kind of a, a drive towards taking your kind of existing products, regular giving, cash giving, um, into new income streams. Uh, one of that was one of them was digital, but also DRTV for those that could afford it was was a really strong um, channel. I guess with all kinds of diversification there's always a bit of a a risk reward analysis you can't um, go into new channel new audience new product all at the same time you kind of really want to you know take something existing into a new channel or to a new audience and see how that goes that goes first if that makes sense yeah no absolutely um so yeah sarah so so looking at the digital fundraising that was something you very actively decided actually maybe this isn't isn't the space for us what work were you doing in that space were you able to yeah. in that space um I suppose we stayed away from I suppose the digital events um I mean we, we had our own portfolio of face-to-face events that, that we couldn't do and, and, and nobody could really um I suppose going back to what um Peter was saying so we did have a product so um during a match day traditionally we would um sell uh, match day prize draw tickets so essentially a raffle but on a much grander scale and that was a really big income generation for us but because the football wasn't on we, we couldn't sell to those corporate supporters on a match day um, and we had been talking for a while about taking um, and adding an online offer um, to uh, for, for the the foundation community champions draw so I suppose what COVID did was push us into that so uh, that was the main digital um, activity that we did um, so it, it, it's been successful. Um, it's, it's a slow burner, but we definitely had income not to the same level as the face to face that we've generated. And I think um, all fingers crossed, we, we um, uh, football returns in, in August. That will be a complementary product as well. So it's, it's diversifying that that uh, activity itself. So we will have the face to face, fingers crossed, and also we'll have the additional uh, digital income and um, great in the fact that it allows us to build up our database. So moving forward, if we want to look at that regular giving offer, uh, we're, we're going to have, I suppose, some digital um, donors that, that we can target. So, yeah, I would say that's been a, a positive in that space. Oh, brilliant. And Hamid, you were saying that kind of a lot of your don- a chunk of your donations was coming from mosque donations. I'm assuming that's going to be kind of a spare change phenomenon, is it? And, and yet, yeah, how do you go about replacing that with digital? And what were your experiences and the challenges of using digital for you? I think in digital, uh, fast stream is yet through the digital media advertising, then influencer marketing, you know, there are lots of influence, influential people in social media, we actually sold them. Uh, we, we made some packages, you know, for different programs. And then marketing to online groups, different online groups here, we did actually, uh, marketing and then different group actually came forward. Like in this Ramadan, one cycling group, they raised nearly 100,000 pounds for us. And then integrated email and social media marketing, this is another another very strong marketing tool and fundraising tool as well. And partnership with various fundraising platforms. There are different platforms, you know, there, there, there are a sports platform as well. We use a marathon and this sort of thing. We did actually partnership with those sort of uh, groups and it worked as well. And then we did some virtual events. Plus, at the same time, because pandemic it is there for a few months or few years, but it will not be hard back, you know. The mm. time, time is coming. So we are actually planning programs for post-pandemic. And 
and in this pandemic actually gave us uh, gave us opportunity to think strategically think um, you know uh, new something new and thinking outside the box so uh, as a result we are actually now giving new programs yeah very innovative program which we are seeing our fundraisers in, in uh, social media influencers they are taking it very well yeah so like for example we are planning now a, a program for next year our fundraisers are actually been fundraising through the online media and other things so that way uh, in a different uh, innovative way we are trying to find a way uh, and uh, we are finding it very actually successful that people are becoming engaged and different group and we are working with the different university actually uh, university student groups as well and plus young people uh, so all the, all these avenues we are exploring and uh, and some some initiative here majority of them the initiative we mentioned these are successful mm-hmm. but there are some initiative which are not successful so which which of our initiative are not successful we are actually stopping that and then taking the new initiative that's a really interesting point that often kind of yeah what what can make for good fundraising is actually going this isn't work isn't working testing failing and trying something else so that's that's really important are, are there any other sort of strands you want to talk about in terms of planning your recovery and the future but the recovery of what we are uh, doing uh, number one actually to the donors yeah, when we are asking uh, in the traditional donation you know people are uh, used to give the donation used to give the gift aid and all these things but now what we are adding of course we are we are actually giving special emphasis on gift aid and thing and at the same time we are asking our donors to give something extra for our administration cost so that we can maximize the humanitarian work the donation we can give and at the same time another thing which we are trying to do yeah uh, that is the institutional funding and for institutional funding we are hiring the expertise yeah whoever has the expertise and because this institutional funding is a, is a good source for the recovery as well and at the same time uh, by, uh, by by extra or additional donation we are trying to actually develop our reserve fund so that in the future if, if this sort of eventuality is come we can actually fight, we, we can tackle it we can overcome these these sort of challenges end of the day for us as a charity donors are our capital they are our strength and we found it it's actually how you are selling your program to the donors how you are educating your donors if you are positive if you are we are transparent and and if we are actually ready to take their cooperation i think donors are very much forward looking and they come forward to help so that is the uh, where we are trying number one engaging with donors in an effective way number two keeping us transparent number 3 giving the donors feedback and yes yeah, sarah if i can kind of tend to you it was interesting hamid was talking about sort of the expertise for institutional fundraising there because obviously that's something that you were saying you've become more and more dependent on um but yeah looking forward what are the plans for recovery and for the longer term for you um well obviously our, our events will come back um and we're we're planning for that now i think for us this our plan hasn't changed um dramatically um we've had to i suppose tweak it as as everybody has i think for us um before for the pandemic we we took a, a big decision to very much focus on long term relationships partnerships with donors kind of touching on what hamid is saying you you want 
to be able to go to donors and for them to know that you're having the impact that, that they're wanting, but have that real long-term relationship. So we really focused, whether it was a corporate or whether it was a funder, in getting support on a much longer basis. It gives the, the charity that stability. So looking at two, three, four-year agreements, uh, if possible. Um, and obviously, you have to make sure that you're delivering each each year and have that regular contact. So they have that comfort and, and, and are happy to commit to that longer term. Um, also, I think for us, um, we are in the process of building our new community health sport educational hub, uh, which is going to be ready in about six months or halfway through the, the build phase. And, and because of that, we have developed really strong corporate relationships and quite significant six, seven figure donations for five year, five year um, support capital and revenue. And I think for us, we've seen how important it is that it, it isn't transactional so yes we we are going to a significant donation but how else can we add value to those agreements um so yes you have the i suppose the contract in itself of what you are going to deliver and what impact you can deliver uh, and also things like the pr but also how do we um i suppose embed the organization with their staff so what assets have we got that, that are of interest um so for example, health and well-being. We've got some amazing staff that deliver things like sleep and stress work at the workshops. Um, can we offer those a, a free of charge to online um, and really engaging and supporting their own kind of health and well-being offer that they offer to their staff? So really thinking about um, what are the, the the easy ways and and and, and the right ways to, to engage with, with that business apart from, I suppose, the original agreement. And that's been really successful because they are seeing that it is a, a genuine partnership um, together and that can develop and um i suppose what a lot of our corporate partners now is if they do have an issue they can come to us if they think we can help solve it for them as well uh, which is over and above i suppose the initial donation and the agreement oh fantastic um yeah and and peter in terms of the charities you're working with how are you seeing this kind of um looking at recovery and then also looking at the longer term um thinking about income streams and and diversification i think that when we're talking about income streams, it's something we don't often talk about in, in charity because all of our all of our causes are so worthy, but a lot of it ultimately comes down to competition. Um, so there are 166,000 charities in the UK and, and competition is is really tough. Um, and so I think sometimes we, we have to put a sort of an objective um, sort of business head on sometimes and think about the areas that we're playing in that are actually already really saturated. Um, you know, a lot of the time we're all going after the same, the same audiences in the same channels with a similar message. So as we're, as we're looking to the future, it's mostly about finding that open space to play in that isn't as competitive. Um, and also finding out your competitive, competitive advantage. I know Sarah's examples are great. All of the things that, you know, they have that completely unique because um you know who else is associated with with newcastle fc and um, so finding the things that people really value that only you have um, and then taking it into kind of new channels and new new audiences so that's how really kind of how we go about that that long-term planning but it will also be about managing risk um and, and understanding you know sometimes you have to keep the sort of steady um income streams going as you test and learn a whole bunch of different things some of them will fail and that's okay um, but that's that's how you kind of grow into the future um in terms of that collaboration going forward what are charities learning during the pandemic and what's it going to look like 
um, sort of in the long term? Do you think that's going to stick around? I think um, it's really exciting. Uh, um, COVID's been an incredibly difficult time, but in many ways it's been uh, also the most exciting time and the most um, the opportunity, the most time of most opportunity. I love what Hamid was saying before um, about kind of hope for the future. Um, I think that one of the key things is collaboration internally. Um, so, um, you know, the hope is that COVID has allowed people in different teams to kind of work together more and not see their um, their kind of role as, as quite siloed. Uh, it's, we were talking about um, collaboration with corporates before. One of the challenges, you know, we know some of our clients have had is you might have someone from a corporate giving team going to a business and saying, we'd love to we'd get you to give us X pounds. And then someone from another team coming on the very next day and saying, we'd like you to partner on uh, this service. So, you know, that the integration internally is really key to kind of collaborating externally as well. Um, but yeah, overall, we, we, we we're really excited about the prospect of organisations working together across sector. Absolutely. I can imagine businesses much like um, uh, individuals don't like to be bombarded. Um, Sarah, um, we've had a, quite a few questions in the chat. Um, so you mentioned um, collaboration around um, working with corporates particularly. And a lot of people have been asking, do you have any advice or tips for building or establishing corporate partnerships or reaching out to current corporate sponsors and exploring new fundraising initiatives? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I've knocked on many corporate doors. So, I mean, we, we, we got probably about five or six key corporate partners. Um, I think for us, we, it's just identifying, I suppose, who are the, who are the corporates that you feel fit with your values as a charity? That, that's probably the, the basic and, and that will narrow your list down because uh, as, as Peter uh, touched upon, it is a very, very competitive market. Um I think for us, the, the, the regional aspects uh, is, is, is key. But looking at those values, I mean, the Newcastle Building Society, who are one of our big partners, their, their uh, real focus was on um, engaging young people back into work and, and supporting uh, youth unemployment and getting young, young people back into the workplace. And that is really one of our key focuses as well. So that was a real natural fit to start opening that conversation. So I think as long as you can demonstrate you're, you're successful in, in the sphere that, that, that corporate is also um, engaged with, then, then that's a starting point. And just invite them to one of your projects. I think you know, can't go in there, especially, I mean, it took about 18 months to two years to, to really develop that partnership and get to where we are. And um, I suppose if, if you are a charity that needs a quick win, uh, maybe the, the, the larger scale corporate fundraising isn't for you, but it's not that you shouldn't be investing the time now to do it. So your events are the quick turnaround and maybe smaller corporate gifts um, uh, and, and there's some major donors. But I think th- those bigger strategic partnerships do take time. So um, be patient um, and yes, don't expect it to happen overnight, but invest the time get them to see what you're doing. And yes, I think we, we also did a couple of events that were quite general to, to, to the, the corporate and, and stakeholder, the market, just to show that uh, So we launched an impact report, for example. That was great. We had 200 people come to an event with a great keynote speaker. And again, that's about that cultivation and developing those relationships. And it doesn't have to be a big fancy 200. It could just be 10 people um, of your key targets. But yes, I think it's, it's, it's all about um, I suppose reinforcing the message that you can deliver but also them getting to know you uh, and vice versa. 
Brilliant. Um, so I think that's all we've got time for. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up. But thank you very much, guys. This has been a really, really interesting discussion. And I, yeah, I hope everybody at home has enjoyed it too. Each week, we bring you a mini coronavirus care package, a good news story we've spotted in the sector. Rebecca, what have you got this week? First up, I have got, uh, I think I think this is this is a horror story and something I, I dread happening to me. Um, so a woman who lost her engagement ring in Lake Windermere two days after her boyfriend popped the question has been reunited with it thanks to a free diver. Oh, that is a nightmare. Right. So she Oof. was uh, sitting on the jetty of a hotel on the shores of Windermere in the Lake District um, and this ring slipped from her finger. Um, and fortunately, to the rescue came Angus Hosking, who is a volunteer who carries out underwater litter picks. Uh, he was alerted by staff on the lake and he used an underwater metal detector and found it after a 20 minute search. So uh, he's, he's part of a volunteer group and they've been clearing litter from the lakes for the past three and a half years and describe themselves as a community based organisation. So, uh, yeah, he got a call at work at lunchtime and came as soon as he finished his shift. With something as light and small as a ring, he said, it's time sensitive, but fortunately we had a rough idea of where it was. If it had been in the middle of the lake, it wouldn't have been like finding a needle in a haystack, but a needle in the world. Wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, using a le- uh, metal detector, uh, they found it. And um, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, so, it's like a fairy yeah, tale. It is. It's a nice little, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I get convinced like I'm going to drop things down the plug hole and like that couldn't possibly... Uh, so that was a rather sweet little story. And then we had another kind of local community one. So this is South Sea Model Village, uh, South Sea in Portsmouth. Um, they have a, a little model village that um, keeps being vandalised. Um, oh, no. Yeah. And I mean, I, so I first noticed this on Twitter because someone had tweeted it out and they'd said, happy ending to the story. The three kids who vandalised it, one of their mums actually turned them in. <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the charity fundraising angle on this is they started a fundraiser uh, to to sort of uh, to clean it up and and rebuild it, and they were hoping to get one thousand seven hundred and fifty pounds. And because of local generosity, they uh, raised eight thousand eight hundred and sixty pounds um, to to repair the model village. Brilliant! Uh, so that was a nice little story. But yes, I just I rather enjoyed that their mums had just gone. Nope, nope, not having that. Absolutely not. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, it is Volunteers Week. We are coming to the end of Volunteers Week now. So I also thought we could share the good news that the RSPCA has seen an 85% increase in its volunteer base over the last 12 months. That is fantastic. We love that. That is a great stat. So that is more than 16,000 volunteers are now giving their time to the charity, with the number of volunteers doubling since the first COVID-19 lockdown in March last year. Now, the charity partly puts this down to a digital micro-volunteering programme that it launched during the pandemic. It lets volunteers spend their time carrying out quick digital tasks, such as carrying out research or promoting fundraising. Uh, 4,800 people have now gotten involved with that digital micro-volunteering programme, and it has created the charity's youngest ever volunteer base. 66% of volunteers are 35 or under, and more than a third are under the age of 25. Which is great. I mean, we love to see that. That is phenomenal. And obviously, the, the great thing about getting volunteers involved when they're young is that very often they will continue that throughout their lives. And yeah, that's a really, really excellent, excellent piece of news. Absolutely. And I've always been really keen on micro-volunteering because of its accessibility, because of the ease with which people can get involved. So I'm really, really delighted to see that this has been a success for the RSPCA. Between them, the micro-volunteers have completed more than 12,000 digital tasks. 
and the charity has now set itself an ambitious plan to recruit a million volunteers by 2030. So best of luck to the RSPCA with that ambitious plan. Absolutely. And I feel like we've heard recently a lot of kind of charities coming out with targets or or, or goals that are ambitious. And I I really love this energy. I think this is great. And I think, yeah, this seems like an ambitious target that that can can be achieved. All power to them. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.